A socialite and well-known philanthropist sits on a wrought iron bench surrounded by a garden scene. A Waterford crystal glass of champagne in her perfectly manicured hand, a stylish cigarette holder in the other. She wears a fabulous black hat and a hot pink feather boa. Mickey Easterling sits perched, welcoming the who's who of New Orleans. Oh, and one more detail. She's dead. In Ohio, Billy Stanley's last wish is coming true. He's planned this day for years. He's purchased multiple plots. He's made all the arrangements. He, too, is dead. And he's about to be buried seated on his beloved 1967 Harley-Davidson. The motorcycle and him buried together in a large plexiglass box. In Puerto Rico, Georgina Cervoni Yorin is resting in her rocking chair, dressed in her wedding dress. She is also, you guessed it, dead. All three are lifelike guests of honor at their own wakes and funerals. Something that has been made possible by extreme embalming. I'm Layella Kelly, and this is Death Becomes Her, the podcast where we discuss death, dying, and grief from a variety of angles. Embalming became a popular practice in the United States during the Civil War. I have already covered some of the history in Season 1, Episode 11. Today, embalming is used as a bit of a short-term fix. Though a generally unnecessary practice, many funeral homes recommend the optional service as a way to slow the decomposition process. Additionally, the pigments in embalming fluid can enhance the look of the deceased by returning color to the face and hands. As I mentioned, it's for the short term. An embalmed body will still decompose. It simply slows the process, much like refrigeration slows the process. However, there is one example of atypical embalming that many of us are familiar with. Vladimir Lenin. Lenin died January 21st, 1924, nearly 100 years ago, and yet his body is still on display. But as you may imagine, it's not easy to keep a hundred-year-old corpse looking lifelike. A whole team is tasked with his preservation. Shortly after his death, Lenin was embalmed in the traditional manner. Ongoing preservation efforts have continued ever since. The current protocol includes an annual soaking of the body in a solution of glycerin and potassium salt. If there's an area of discoloration or damage, they are spot treated with chloroform, alcohols, acid, hydrogen peroxide, and disinfectants. Synthetic eyeballs have been added to keep the eye sockets from collapsing. Many would consider that as an example of extreme embalming, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. Extreme embalming for this podcast purposes refers less to the practice of embalming and more to the overall effect, though embalming is definitely a part of it, and we'll get to that. At the outset, I mentioned a few examples, but Mickey, Billy, and Georgina are certainly not the only ones who have attended their own visitations with such flourish. As I've been preparing this episode, I have spent a lot of time online studying images of the once living that still appear 
at least at first glance, to be part of the crowd. There's Renard Matthews, a 17-year-old murder victim who lounges in a gaming chair with his favorite snacks and a game controller in his hands. Fernando de Jesus Diaz Beato, a 26-year-old who was shot 15 times. He's sitting in his mom's nicest chair, a chair that he was never allowed to sit in while living. His ankle is crossed over his knee, his hands are on his lap, and his eyes are open. David Morales Colon appears to be racing his motorcycle. In some of the online images, you can see a young girl taking photos of David. Carlos Cabrera Mercado, 53, asked to be dressed to resemble his hero, Che Guevara, and displayed in his favorite park, where he used to spend much of his time. The list goes on. The gambler, the domino player, the taxi driver, boxer, even one man dressed as the superhero Green Lantern. Many make these arrangements for themselves. For others, it's the families that chose to honor their loved ones in this way. As you may be imagining, extreme embalming has received a mixed reception. Here are a few of the comments that I found while researching. Another form of taxidermy. Tasteless and a waste of resources. Bizarre. Extremely disturbing. This scares me in the worst way. But others commented that it's a beautiful concept, capturing someone's life, their lifestyle, the way they lived. One woman said, my brother was in a wheelchair for years before he died. It would have been so wonderful to see him standing with his guitar. Even the funeral industry can't agree. The Puerto Rico Funeral Homeowners Association called the practice sacrilegious. But other professionals see it from a different angle. Notice what Richard Rosen of the Neil Bartle Funeral Home in Winnipeg had to say. This is just interesting. It must have been a very important aspect in his life to have the family feel that strongly. Full credit to the funeral company for making it happen. But how do you make something like that happen? It's not easy. To begin with, it's not just a normal embalming, which is already an invasive procedure. In normal embalming, the blood and other bodily fluids are flushed from the body and replaced with chemicals, chemicals like formaldehyde that will slow decomposition. These chemicals will also harden the body a little bit, not rigor mortis stiff, but a bit of tension. Certainly not nearly enough to maintain the body in the positions that are common in extreme embalming. The actual technique seems to be a guarded trade secret, with many funeral directors suggesting that one factor is likely the use of a much higher percentage solution than would normally be administered. Felix Cruz, an embalmer who made a gambler's last card game a reality, shared further insight. He said, I injected different parts of the body with different formulas of embalming fluid. For the hand, I injected formaldehyde, put the fingers apart, and inserted the playing cards. I used a pipe to maintain the head and neck in position inside the body. Yes, you heard that right. Piping inserted into the body. In the case of a jazz musician, Lionel Batiste, his standing body was attached to a prop light post and his shoes were nailed to the floor. And Billy Stanley, the man in the plexiglass casket writing his Harley for eternity, 
That was made possible with the help of five embalmers and a metal brace and straps. Two camps. Which one are you in? Originally, I was definitely leaning towards the, why in the world would you choose that side? But the more that I've read the individual stories, I've come to see that the motivation isn't to be outlandish, but rather to celebrate their loved one. Remember Fernando Beato, who was seated in his mother's special chair? His sister said, we want it to remember him as he was. And his mother added, he looked like the same son that he was. Miriam Brickbank was seated at a kitchen table with a bush beer, a pack of menthols, and her fingernails manicured in New Orleans Saints colors. Her sister, Charlene, was very pleased with the scene. She said, it's like she's not dead. It's not like a funeral home. It's like she's just in the room with us. The more I read the comments from the different families about how positive they found this experience, the more I began to agree with what the owner of one funeral home said. She's actually the owner of the Marin Funeral Home, which is where many of these embalmings have occurred. She said, if that's something that the family wants, why wouldn't you do it? And then I had my own experience. Last year, I had a death doula client at end of life. He was young, only 47. He was an athlete and he loved the outdoors. One summer, he literally left his home here in Helena, Montana and walked to Canada. He was that kind of guy. Prior to his death, he and his wife had decided that after last breath, his wife would be the one to perform his after-death care. They chose to have some elements of home funeral. In this case, family-directed after-death care and in-home visitation for those who chose to say goodbye in person, followed by a witness cremation through a local cremation provider. That was the plan. When he died, his wife and brother stepped up and effortlessly cared for him. His wife bathed his body, and then together, his brother and his wife dressed him in his favorite running attire. His brother shaved his face. I prepared the bed where he would be laid out. We knew that his family wanted to see him one last time via video call. So because of this, we decided that it would probably be easiest and most practical if he was seated. That way, you know, the camera could could be placed so that his family could see him. Just it was a practical choice. So that's what we did. He was positioned in a seated position and then we adorned his space with some of his favorite things, added his trekking poles, his backpack, his headlamp, some quilts that his mother had made. And so he had all these things that he had loved throughout the years. So here's the thing. Glioblastoma is ugly. Uh, it is, for those of you who don't know, glioblastoma is brain tumors. And so the brain tumors had affected parts of his brain so that um, his arm was now being held in an unnatural position. He had had trouble keeping his head upright. One of his eyelids didn't want to cooperate with him. But in death, all of these things melted away. His body relaxed. 
He was finally peaceful. He was no longer holding himself rigid. His arm was no longer twisted. He was no longer bracing for the next thing. So as he lay reclined on his bed, dressed as the adventurer that he was, he no longer looked the part of a sick man. He looked like a man who had at last fallen asleep after a long, hard hike. It was beautiful. As news of his death spread, his closest friends made their way to his home. I observed as people steadied themselves before going into the bedroom to say goodbye to their friend. I got the impression that they were relieved at his appearance. They had walked with him through the final weeks of his life, and now they were given the gift of seeing him not as a man with fever and pain, but as the man they had always known, a brave adventurer. I have such great pride that I was able to be part of such a beautiful transition, and that experience has adjusted my viewpoint and given me a different perspective of what families are wanting to accomplish through extreme embalming. We had reached a similar outcome, though the means was decidedly different. But seeing him looking much more the way he had when he was healthy really was comforting. And I get it now. Personally, I can't get on board with invasive death care. I wouldn't choose it. It's not for me. However, I will absolutely support a family in choosing whatever option is right for them, anything from home funeral to extreme embalming. If the concept of seeing their loved one a certain way eases their grief, I can understand the desire to make that a reality, whatever it may look like. One of the things that I most appreciate about the idea of extreme embalming is the complete autonomy for the deceased and their family. Clearly, these families had thoughts and they weren't afraid to ask questions. And we can learn from that. We should all be brave enough to tell our families what we want, educate ourselves on available options, and make the choice that speaks to us. Thank you for listening to the Death Becomes Her podcast. Connect with me, Lyella Kelly, at www.leavingwellmt.com. Remember, talking about death won't kill you. I promise.